You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Nicola Harrison on the show with me. She has an amazing new historical fiction called The Showgirl, and what a fun read this is. If you love historical fiction like I do, this is a must-have for your summer reading. Go grab it today. There's going to be links in the show notes of this episode. Welcome to the show, Nicola. Hi, Hank. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Nicola, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or a storyteller? Oh, um, I think that it was when I was really young. I grew up in England, and on my street um, lived an author, a children's book author named Margaret Greaves, and um, she was just she lived right next door to one of my best friends. And so we would go over there all the time and, and uh, talk to her and talk to her about her books and buy her books and she would sign them. And then when I, when we moved away to another area, I continued to stay in touch with her and um, I would <laughs> send her letters and, you know, bits of my writing that I was doing and poetry and stuff. <laughs> and, she, and she would always write me back and be very encouraging, but also telling me, you know, cause I think I was a little, eager at a young age. <laughs> it's like, should I send this to a publisher? She's like, you know, hold off and keep, keep on writing, just keep practicing. Um, so I think that, you know, those early influences really affect you. And that was probably what got me thinking about writing. And then when I went to college, I went to UCLA and I studied English and creative writing. And I had um, another amazing mentor, Carolyn C., who was actually um, the mother of Lisa C., the author. Sure. Yeah. And so I took, you know, every class that I could, I, I would, she offered, I took it. And um, she was just so wonderful. She would always, um, she would, you know, she was teaching us about writing, but also about life. And, she, and then we stayed in touch also when I moved to New York. So um, I think those influences really, those early influences really uh, helped me decide I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> What a gift that had to be as a young person to to meet someone who was doing the thing that you dreamed of doing and that you could put a face to it and, you know, see that that she was a, a, a normal person with a life of her own who just happened to write and publish children's books that exactly. uh, that demystifying of the process uh, it was probably worth more than than you could even describe. Yes, exactly. It's like, it's not like this, you know, fantastical idea of a writer out there somewhere. It's like, okay, this is an actual writer who lives on my street. <laughs> right. know, visualize it. Absolutely. So you grew up in, in England uh, and then immigrated to Southern California. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Well, how much of a culture shock was that? It was a big culture shock. Um, I remember I was going into high school and we, my parents and I, when we first got there, the night we landed, we were staying at this place right next door to the school. And I said, I'm going to, I want to walk over to the school and see what my high school is going to look like. 
And I, we walked over and I saw these, I wasn't expecting anyone to be there, but I saw these kids hanging out wearing like cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And there were like big um, bales of hay. And I'm like, oh my God, I am never going to fit in here. Like, this is crazy. And then I realized afterwards that it was a Sadie Hawkins dance. And that was like the theme of the night, but I didn't know that. Oh, that is so funny. I thought I was going to have to go out and buy cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and, you know, denim jacket just to fit in. But I was okay. That's so funny. Um, Nicola, do you remember the first book uh, or or maybe it was an, an author, maybe it was your author friend that lived close to you um, um um or maybe a series of books that that let you know that books could just completely transport you to another place in time oh that's a good question i'm trying to think if it was i mean you know there were the judy bloom books which <laughs> i remember devouring when i was younger but i think as i got older you know i really always was drawn to historical fiction i remember um reading memoirs of a geisha and, and just being completely absorbed in that. And then later, you know, Beatrice Williams and Fiona Davis and, um, you know, those historical fiction writers I just love. And um, yeah, those are probably the ones that made me, yeah, that I just transport you to another time and place. <laughs> um, you, uh, you also have uh, worked in the fashion industry. How, how did that come about? Yeah, so in in college, I knew I wanted to write, but, um, you know, I knew I, it wasn't realistic to start writing my book right after, right out of college. So I wanted to move to New York and get into magazine publishing. And so I did that. And, um, and you know, I, I didn't really care what I just wanted to be writing for a magazine. And I fell into, um, into writing for fashion magazines. Actually, I wrote about men's fashion for a long time. And then I became the style writer at Forbes. So I was writing about men's and women's fashion. And, uh, but always on the side, I was always at night, I was always taking a creative writing class and, you know, dabbling away with my own creative writing, as well as the journalism. Taking creative writing courses, um, what do you think that, that the, the educational side of that um gave you as a writer you know some people you know get involved in an mfa course and you know uh study and 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 write and and you know uh share with uh with um you know teachers and, and classes for years uh on end some people don't uh pursue any sort of sort of formal education and and you know just write out of their natural giftedness and 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 work th uh, you know through the process that way um what do you feel like that it gave you as a writer to to study writing and uh that that maybe you wouldn't have had on your own yeah so i ended up going back to school and getting my mfa as well i was taking so many you know courses on the side i was like i should just do get my mfa <laughs> um which i did part time but um i think the the thing that I got out of it, the, the best thing I got out of it, is that you just get so used to writing more regularly and having sort of a weekly deadline to turn something in. And and that that in itself is helpful. And then also you just get used to sharing your work with other people and um, learning how to receive feedback and 
giving feedback. And, you know, it was just sort of like that was more important to me than anything else. Just sort of the, the habit and the ritual of writing on a regular basis. I think that's what I got out of it the most. Well, and and sharing with other people and and learning how to receive criticism um, and then, you know, having the uh, the ability to separate what is good criticism from, uh, you know, maybe a place where you you need to to make a stand, even if it's against, you know, um, uh, you know, the advice that you're getting from other people. Did you ever have a situation like that where you knew um, that you were on the right track and maybe other people didn't see it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there were certainly times when people are giving you feedback and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but it, it all is helpful. Like, it's all helpful. And even if at the, sure. at the time, you know, it doesn't sink in. I always felt like later when I went home or a few days later, I was like, there's a little bit of a nugget of truth in there. And maybe it's not quite what they're saying, but there's there's something that wasn't working. Um, but even even now, I mean, I'm in a I'm in a writing group with like a group of six people and I've been meeting with them for about seven years. We meet every Thursday and, you know, during COVID it's been on Zoom. And actually I moved back to California. So it's for me, it's on Zoom forever. <laughs> but um, but I just I love to continue that and and, you know, and get feedback and we share our work. And again, it's that it's that weekly deadline. We know that we are meeting on a Thursday and we've got to have something um that sort of holds you accountable your your first book uh montauk that was um that was published was that the first novel that you had written yes did uh how how long had you worked on that before uh before you were able to sell it i it took me about four years to write it but you know of course i didn't have an agent or a publisher so i wasn't i, I didn't have a deadline to turn it in um and uh yeah so it took me four years i'm i'm always fascinated uh by historical fiction um because uh the stories that that come out of that are are you know rooted in real places and real events and um yet a uh a completely um um, new story comes out of that and and where these characters that we can imagine inhabit these real um, places and times and 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 events uh, maybe uh, what was that initial inspiration for Montauk for Montauk for me it was that I had spent a lot of time out there I used to have a, um, a little summer house out there and I saw the town changing over the years from being this like little tiny fishing village that was sort of a little too far away from New York City for people to drive out to. They would drive out to the Hamptons, but they would stop there and they didn't want to do the extra 35 minutes out to Montauk. So we, so it felt like a little uh, kept secret. <laughs> um, but I saw that changing over the years and I saw more people coming out and some of the mom and pop shops, you know, leaves selling and, and uh, fancier hotels and restaurants coming in. And I thought, you know, I just felt nostalgic. And I wondered what it was like back in the day when people first started going out there. And so I started doing digging around and doing some research. And um, and so that's how it that's how it started. It was just like a little gem of an idea. And plus, I just loved I love the place so much. I wanted to write about it. Um, but then the story itself, even though the, the it was based 
you know, historically on what happened back in the 30s, the story of itself is fictional. When when you start feeling that inspiration and, uh, you know, you you come up with a, a great scenario for a book and uh, when do the characters start coming in and, and inhabiting this idea and, and sort of taking a life of their own? How, how do how do you craft characters in in a situation like that? Right. Well, so for the showgirl, um, my latest book, I had no idea that I was going to be writing about a Ziegfeld showgirl. I had written an article for a travel magazine about this resort up in the Adirondacks, um, up in upstate New York. And it was an estate that was originally built for William Avery Rockefeller II as his family compound. And now it's a va- now it's like a fancy hotel where you can go and stay and they kind of keep it in the tradition of how it used to be. So even though you're in the woods and you're hiking and boating during the day, you get dressed up in like cocktail attire for these evening parties that are kind of like the 20s so I was writing about this this place and I started getting very interested in it and there are all these and it's called a great camp up in the Adirondacks and there are all these other great camps up there and I thought you know that's kind of cool I'm going to write a I'm going to set a novel up there at one of these great camps um but I had never been and I'd never even been to the Adirondacks so I went up there and stayed at one of them and was getting a tour of the of one of these great camps called White Pines Camp. And um, this local historian was talking about the architecture and the cabins and the great room and and everything. And then he just casually mentioned that um, the original owner of this place, his wife was a Ziegfeld Folly and a showgirl and that she was a real party girl and that she used to have all of her theater friends and her bohemian friends come up to the upstate New York at their, at their uh, camp and stay and she'd throw these wild parties and she insisted that um you know nobody should walk more than 500 feet without a drink in their hands so she set up bar carts and bartenders everywhere and I was just like oh she sounds like a riot (laughs) she sounds like fun what what else do you know about her and he was like well that's all I really know there's not much on her but that that sort of got my mind ticking and I so I started researching the Ziegfeld Follies and the showgirls and and so that character is it completely changed the course of what I thought I was going to write. And it all takes, you know, so much of it takes place in New York City on the stage. And they do go up to the Adirondacks. But um, but but it was just like that little spark. He just happened to mention one thing. And that's where the whole book came from. <laughs> I love that so much. It, and, and you're absolutely right. We I think we've all had that spark that just, you know, a whole story lives in that spark. And, and you know, it's it's then our job as a writer to 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 dig around and uncover what the story is there. Um, the Ziegfeld Follies is um, it is fascinating to me. And well, the, the whole setting and, and time is fascinating because uh, this would uh, this would be what we would equate to a kind of modern celebrity in a way. Um, but, you know, this was also sort of scandalous at the time. And, you know, to to be famous in this way was to, uh, you know, to also be, you know, kind of live a, a life of scandal that that had to be uh, a fun thing to uh, to embody and, and, and live through while you're writing. Oh, so fun. So fun. I mean, just just and also like bringing that to life in, in my protagonist, Olive. I mean, she was completely different from the protagonist from Montauk. Olive was like 
feisty and ambitious and, you know, wasn't going to let anything stand in her way. And that's just a really fun character to embody. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com I'm I'm fascinated by how um, a a sense of place um, comes out in in interesting ways in people's writing. So you uh, up until you were 14, I think it was, lived in England and mm-hmm. then uh, moved to Southern California. And then you know some of the most formative years of your life in a lot of ways happened in Southern California. And then you moved to New York, and you're writing. Uh, you know, stories based in, in New York or, or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel like that 
the places that formed you um, come across in your stories and, and maybe not in in obvious ways, but um, are, are there things about the way and the places you were raised that that come into uh, the stories that you tell? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that I haven't written anything said in England yet. <laughs> maybe I will one day. <laughs> but uh, I mean, there's something to be said for writing about where you are. So, you know, um, my two books I wrote while I was in New York and it's nice. It's so nice to be able to like, you know, for example, in the showgirl, they spend a lot of time in the West Village in the, and in the theater district. So to be able to walk around there and go to places while you're writing the book really helps, even though things have changed and it's different. But, um, you know, and just knowing that I've been to the New Amsterdam Theater to see The Lion King, but that's where Ziegfeld Follies took place. You know, it's that there's something to be said to be able to be able to be in the place that you're writing about. Um, but as far as I mean, growing up in England, there's something about historical fiction, even though my novels take place, have taken place in New York, there's something English about them. <laughs> maybe it's, I don't know what it is exactly, but there's maybe it's the way they used to speak or something that I feel like my Englishness helps with that. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> no, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, when there are science fiction writers, um, for instance, that write in the uh, in in the distant future or the the unreachable future like uh, if you write a science fiction novel that's that's uh based a hundred years from now it's close enough that you can speculate a lot of things but not close enough that any of us are going to survive to to know that you know if those predictions came true or not um an interesting thing about historical fiction is you can you can reverse the clock and and kind of do the 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 inverse of that. If you tell a story based roughly a hundred years in the past, um, what does writing historical fiction do for you as a storyteller uh, to allow you to 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 root a story in places we're familiar with, but give enough distance that that you can be as creative as you want to be. Does, does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And it's such a good question because I think that's what I love about writing historical fiction is that it's set in a totally different place from what I'm at the time from what I'm used to. And I have to do a lot of research to be able to capture that, you know, the fashion and the the, the social sensibilities and, and everything. Um, and the way men and women are and you know all of that is so different but um but what i find with the characters is that this the characters have the same sort of universal desires and wants and needs you know they whether it's today or 100 years ago there's like this need to love and be loved and there's like a, a need to be successful at something and and things like that and so i i find that even though you're writing at a different time the character, the, the readers can still relate to, and I mean, me as a writer, like I can still relate to these characters and and tap into things. And and a lot of this book um, deals with sort of the question of like, can you have it all as a woman? Can, you know, can you be a mother and have a successful career and have successful relationships and be a wife, or do you have to like pick and choose a few of those things? 
And so I, I enjoyed exploring that question. And I think that relates today. I mean, I, I struggle with that today. I think about that today. And of course, in the 20s, you know, women had just got the right to vote. So they were, they were emboldened by that. And they were wanting to, you know, live the lives the way they, they wanted to and dress the way they wanted to and smoke and drink and do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and, you know, it's just interesting to, to, to think of it like that, that women were thinking about their freedoms then and they're thinking about your freedoms now. And it's, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, um, how do you handle research? Um, the, you really, and I find it interesting uh, when reading the show, Girl, uh, the the amount of detail that you include, but not so much detail that it just goes into navel gazing. Um, you know that that you you know just the the right um, amount of description that needs to go in and to to paint a picture and make me feel like I'm there without just inundating me with you know the style of buttons that are on people's jackets and and, and things like that like how do you how do you uh balance out um the well one the research that you do so that you can um authoritatively speak about it um but then the the amount of that research that you share with the reader yeah well that's the goal right so you want to be authentic and you know feel like you're actually writing about the 20s but you like it's the worst when you read a book where you just feel like you're reading research that then you then you just lose the reader. So what I do, I mean, I read a ton of different books. I read a ton of books about um, New York in the 20s. Um, and then, you know, of course, the Ziegfeld Follies. Um, I, I, I devoured an, a memoir by a woman called um, Doris Eaton Travis, who at age 14 was the youngest woman, the youngest girl to be in the Ziegfeld Follies. And she went on to live to be 106. And off, on her 100th birthday, she performed at the New Amsterdam Theater with a bunch of showgirls. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I read her book. And then there was another book with several other books about um, the Follies that I read. And so what I do is I just devour them all. And then I put them away. And then I start writing. I don't have them out and like refer to them because then then you're at risk of um of getting too clunky with the research. So I just try to absorb it all and then just start writing. <laughs> Do you consider yourself, um, and, and we like to use these terms in, in the writer community, um, a, a pantser or a plotter? Do, do you know the story ahead of time before you start drafting the novel? I do. I mean, I generally do. So with both Montauk and The Showgirl, I knew like where it was going to start, kind of where we were going to go, and how it was going to end. Um, and but then I just start writing. So I, I don't. I think I'm right in the middle between a pantser and a plotter, um, or maybe that's more of a pantser. <laughs> but um, but I, I mean, I do. As cheesy as it sounds, I do feel like these. You know, the characters and the novel it does take on a life of its own. And as you're writing. Um, even though you're, you kind of know where you're going, it does sometimes you, you go somewhere you, where you're not expecting to, or a character shows up that you had no idea was going to be in this novel and, and, you know, things like that. It does happen. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm working on a third book now and I'm playing around with plotting it out more than I usually do. Um, 
because I just think, I don't know, maybe that's more helpful. Maybe that's more efficient. I'm, I'm playing around with that idea right now. With with Montauk, your, your first book, um, and you said that you worked on that for uh, for a few years before publication. Uh, and then I would I would guess that the showgirl probably had a, a, a much more condensed um, writing life uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, then you have a contract and you're, yeah. you know, people are expecting a book and, you know, it's, which is very different from writing, uh, you know, in your writing office and, and only you and, you know, a select few family members, you know, know that you're working on something. Now that you're working on your third book, um, how has your writing process changed? Well, um, I certainly try to write every day. Um, and, you know, I I used to have a personal styling business um, that, that I had as well. And now I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just, just focusing on writing. And I also have two kids. So it's like... Um, I'm just way more dedicated to writing. I'm way more protective of my of my writing time. But I also have to leave the house. I have to go somewhere. I mean, unless my kids are at school, which they're not right now and haven't been really for a while. <laughs> but um, but I, I generally find I have to leave the house and go somewhere to with a place or a door that I can close and get some peace and quiet so I can actually focus on my writing. So are are you the uh, the the kind of writer that that needs isolation that you need to get away from from everything or is that just what's best for your process i yeah i pretty much need to be away i mean i can be in a coffee shop with like headphones in but i yeah i need i need quiet or or music that doesn't have any lyrics <laughs> <laughs> nothing can you tell us anything about book three that's coming up? Yeah, so this one's going to take place in the 1940s. And um, surprise, since I say I like to be, you know, in the place that I'm writing about, I'm writing, it takes place in Southern California. And um, it's, uh, it's it's fun. It's, it's you know, um, the character was a Rosie the Riveter. So she worked in the um, one of the airplane factories during the war. And then the war ends and she's without a job and she has to, you know, figure out what she's going to do. So she ends up in Laguna Beach in an artist community, um, totally out of her element, working with a uh, famous artist. And that's all I'll say, because, you know, it might change along the way. <laughs> oh, that's going to be so fun. That's going to be so fun. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, the Showgirl, when you're hearing this, is available everywhere now. You can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, we're going to have links to all those places in the show notes where you can go grab it. Have you heard the the audiobook yet, Nicola? I've heard a, a section of it, and it sounds great. I can't wait. Uh, that's going to be fantastic as well. Uh, or go visit your local bookstore. You can grab The Showgirl everywhere that books are sold. Uh, Nicola, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, my website is NicolaHarrison.com, and I'm on Instagram as uh, Nicola Harrison author and also Facebook, Nicola Harrison author. Excellent. We'll put links to all those places as well. Uh, Nicola, this has been so much fun uh, chatting. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of the show, girl. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onsbach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. 
The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the FOB is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous PFC Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. 
skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.